what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, okay, so with, with you... But I, I hear little kids. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's my, that's my son at the door, banging on the door. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah, he's he's uh, two years old, so he doesn't understand that Daddy uh, is recording and him yelling through the door comes through the microphone. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I was I was actually in the middle of a chat not that long ago, and we were talking about something very serious. It was to do with the murder again, and the, the person on the phone was sort of giving me the details, and all of a sudden my son just comes crashing through the door because he pushed on it too hard, and he's on the floor crying and screaming. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part three, and the final part for now of the Karen Newell story. Karen was convicted for the 1994 murder of John Newell, her husband at the time. It's a crime she says she had nothing to do with, and in fact was committed solely by one man, a man who would become her co-defendant in this case. In our previous episode, we left Karen on the side of the highway. John Newell had been shot, Karen says, by the man who was living in their spare room, a man named Peter Giffen. After PJ shoots John, he then takes off and Karen is left to call 911. Soon enough, there are multiple units on scene, but sadly John has already succumbed to his injuries. And of course, you know, then they separated John and I. They put me in the back of an ambulance and they put him in the back of um, the rescue squad. And then they take us to the nearest hospital. And to this day, I couldn't even tell you which that was, somewhere in Orlando. So they take him there and then, yeah, I guess they pronounce him dead there. And um, they check me over. And um, from there, then the detectives come and they do the, um, the GTS on my hands. And they found out that, of course, I had did not shoot anything. So it showed that I had uh, no residue on my hand from gunshots of any type. And so they let me go. And my um, my sister and them are there. So I, I go home with um, them. 
to back to my house, and then, you know, it's just like chaos there. Here comes detectives, there's cops all in my house, and they just, you know, start taking my side of the story of what happened and having me replay what we did all day long. So that that's how that night played out. And, and you know, the next day it was all about interviews, more interviews, and um, then the media is, like, camped out in front of my house, and everybody's trying to get a statement, and I'm being told, don't say nothing. And my sister is there with me, and um, my youngest brother was also there at the time. But it was it was devastating, to say the least. I mean, it was more than overwhelming. It was like a total nightmare that I had to relive over and over. As you can imagine, the atmosphere back at Karen and John's house is rather chaotic. Detectives are now dealing with an active homicide investigation with a suspect at large with a firearm. They've just killed one man seemingly at random. This suspect needs to be found and found quickly. With any homicide investigation, detectives will tell you the first 48 hours is the most crucial as detectives start to formulate leads and try and work out who was involved. As we know, Karen knew exactly who committed this crime. However, she does not tell them initially who it was and instead tells them that John was shot by strangers who had tried to rob them. So did you did you tell detectives instantly that it was PJ that shot him? No, I, I, I didn't tell them that. I, I made up some stupid story that I should have never made up because I, I don't know, I was just in fear of what had just happened. Like, I can't believe that if PJ just shot him. Was all was going on my head. I was like, I can't believe he just shot up. And it was like, I'm stupidly sitting there saying that I think it was some guys that just they came out of a car and, and pulled over and tried to hold us up. And that was my fault. I mean, I'm not going to take resp- full responsibility for that. I definitely should have never made up a lie like that because of fear. I mean, I knew that PJ knew where my kids lived. And my fear was if he would just do that so blatantly, what would he do to my kids? What was his motive for killing John if he he could definitely get right to where my kids were easily? Because he always said, if I can't have you, nobody else will. And that's what he said to me the night that he came back to the house. And I was like, wow, PJ, this is wrong. What is going on? And then my sister, Annie, she's freaking out. I'm freaking out. And she's like, Karen, you got to you got to tell him. I'm like, and what do I do? I don't I don't know. I mean, now I've already told him one thing and I'm, I'm. I have to tell him that PJ did it, and and he's sitting there telling me, you know, he's that if he can't have me, nobody can have me, and I'm not understanding what his motive is. Why would he think getting rid of John would he could just step into my house and take over? The detectives are being given a story by Karen as to what had happened, while the man who actually shot John was, believe it or not, in the house. Yeah, PJ was there within the hour after it happened. He came right back to the house. He was right there with our vehicle. And with the detectives there as well? right up to the, in the house. Yeah. So he was yeah, in the house with the, detectives, when, right with the there. detectives there. And my sister. So, and he went right to the room, closed the door, and, and went to bed like nothing happened. Like nothing ever happened. People listening to this would probably think, because obviously you said, you know, you, you were worried that what he would do to your kids, etc. But obviously I think people listening to this might think that, well... If he was there and the detectives were there, 
you could have just told the detectives it was him and they would have taken him into custody immediately and then you're, you would have been safe, essentially. Yes, I would have been had I been thinking in the right frame of mind. Yeah. But obviously I was traumatized by the whole event. Sure. And I'm listening to my sister and my and my youngest brother telling me, Karen, just be cool. Just let, let's talk to the attorney. Don't say nothing else. Don't say nothing else. There is no excuse except that I, I was listening to everybody around me except for my own my mindset. I should have been listening to what was right, and I didn't. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guilty of that. Yeah. I'm guilty of being stupid and that. I'm so, not going to ever deny that. I definitely take responsibility for that. From the very beginning of the investigation, the detectives were suspicious of Karen's suggestions that this was a robbery gone wrong. As at the scene, nothing had been in fact stolen and John's wallet was still in the glove box of the car. However, of course, people have been killed over seemingly trivial robberies before. The shooters could have simply panicked and run off without taking anything. So, of course, instead of arresting Karen or accusing her of any crime, detectives begin to do some digging and would come across a police report from three months previous, stating that there had been an attempted break-in at the Newell's property, which resulted in John being seriously injured. Here's Karen on that break-in. Three months prior to um, John being shot, there was an attempted break-in at your home? Um, that's correct. It was in, um, actually it was November 14th, and there was a, um, John had just won a, what do you call it, uh, a blower for like the grass and stuff. Yep. He had won it in a contest at, at his job. And so he had taken that and put it in, it was still a box, he put it in his shed in the backyard. And um, he couldn't remember if he had secured it because he, he was out in the our back of our bedroom was right near where the shed. You could look out and see the shed. And I was getting ready to go into the shower. I remember very clearly. And as I was going in the shower, he said, I'm going outside. I don't remember if I locked up the shed or not. And I'm like, okay. Because, you know, we had an alarm on our house. So I knew he was just going to punch in the code and there shouldn't be no problem. I mean, there was never a problem any other day. So I went to go get in the shower. I'm in the shower and there's a window but in our shower area and all of a sudden I hear this screaming go by the window and I'm like what was that so I jump out of the shower throw a towel on and as I'm going to the front door John is pounding on the front door like he had locked himself out or something so I'm like trying to freak I'm trying to figure out what's going on I pull the door open and he's all bloody so I pull him in slam the door and then I'm trying to defuse the, the alarm system before it you know, starts going off because it's beeping and everything. So I'm trying to punch in the number. Um, I see that he's badly uh, beaten. So I get on the phone and I call 911 and fire and rescue calm and get him along with me. I mean, I went with him, of course. So that was the so-called attempted on his life. How did he go recovering from, from that attack? Well, I mean, like I said, we went to the hospital and he had uh, a laceration in his skull and, you know, lots of, I guess you'd call them like road burns where he fell, where he was trying to, I guess, get back up where he fell in the, in the asphalt mm. of the driveway as he was running to the front door. So, I mean, he just had a lot of cuts and bruises and they, you know, stitched him up. I made sure that um, he had all the proper pain medication that he needed and gauze and things. And then 
we came back home and, um, matter of fact, we came back home in a taxi and when we got back to the house, you know, we secured the house and the funny thing is, is that the police never came and followed up with this. I always found to this day that that's weird that no detective or anything ever came if this was such uh, an attempt on his life that nobody ever came at that point in time ever to follow up on the so-called uh, assault on him. Mm. I mean, wouldn't you find that strange if someone, if he was being assaulted, why didn't the cops ever come back for a statement or anything? Did he want to pursue it any further, John? Did he want to do, did he want to look into it? Yes. I mean, we both did because we felt like he had been, you know, attacked unjustly in our own, on our own residential property. Upon finding out this information, the police need to start making more inquiries with friends and family of John's. This is a man who'd been beaten in a supposed break-in at his home and now three months later has been shot and killed. So they begin asking around to see if anyone can ascertain if John had any enemies, anyone that might want to see him harmed. But they're coming up with nothing. Until friends mention this guy, PJ, who had recently moved in with Karen and John. Now it's suggested from some of Karen and John's friends that after the break-in, Karen apparently approaches John and suggests that they should have PJ move in as a form of sort of extra security. As we know, this is not what Karen says happens. So co-workers of John's flag the suspicious relationship between Karen and PJ with the detectives. They say that they think there's more to Karen and PJ's relationship than just that of friends. Detectives would interview PJ and he essentially corroborates what Karen says in her initial story, that they went to the beach together, then drove home, and he was in front of them and would lose them as he went through the toll booth. Still having more questions, detectives would then travel to PJ's hometown of Port St Lucie to make further inquiries. They find out that PJ is a high school dropout and he's been working on jobs here and there. Detectives would apparently also discover that Karen and PJ had been seen in Port St Lucie looking very much like a couple. But again, as we know, Karen denies any form of relationship with PJ. One thing detectives do discover that Karen has already said was that according to his friends, PJ was in fact extremely in love with Karen and said that he knew they were supposed to be together. Now again, there are claims that PJ had said Karen was pregnant with his child, but as we know, Karen says this is also not true. So detectives seem to be building this picture of what might be going on, but they still have no evidence in which to charge Karen or PJ. John Newell was shot with a 22 caliber pistol, a gun which detectives had yet to locate. Now, it's reported that while detectives continued their inquiries, they would speak with one of Karen's ex-partners. He reportedly tells them that Karen had asked to borrow a gun, and he indeed lends her one. He says it seems like a reasonable request due to the recent attempted break-in. The gun, he says he gives to Karen, is a 22 caliber pistol. When detectives asked Karen's ex-partner to hand over the gun for testing, he was unable to do so. He said that Karen had apparently not returned it to him.
at one point, detectives are interviewing your ex-partner. I don't know which one it was, but they said they were interviewing one of your ex-partners. Um, and he said, firstly, apparently he said that you guys were still um, having the occasional fling um, while you were with John. <laughs> Is this... In his dream. Yeah, right, okay. Um, and also, yeah. also he stated that you at one point asked if you could borrow a gun from him. Uh, and he lent you a gun, and then apparently it was the same caliber of weapon that was used uh, in the shooting of John. The only one um, that could have been is my ex-husband, and right. and he is a Pol- he was a Polk County Sheriff's deputy, and yes, he lent that gun to John. It was a twenty-two caliber. He didn't lend it to me. Okay, but John that, is who actually made the exchange with him. Yeah. So, so do you think that that weapon was the one that was used to kill John and PJ may have got a yes, hold of it? Yes, I, I absolutely, yeah, at this point, I absolutely, from what the detective said, yes, I do believe that was the one that was um, misused in that episode of crime, yes. Because, I mean, John kept it up in the closet in a shoebox. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an unknown fact. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, detectives now have something that they can use to arrest Karen. But it won't be for the murder of her husband. By having a gun, Karen had, in fact, broken a parole violation. Um, Had you ever been to jail or prison before? I had been to jail. Yes, I had. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So detectives have just learned that Karen had asked her ex-partner for a gun. And this was in fact a breach of her parole, as Karen was in fact already a convicted felon. Um, Had you ever been to jail or prison before? I had never been to prison before, no. You'd been to jail? This was my first time in prison. I had been to jail. Yes, I had. I was in Lakeland. And uh, the girl that was, I thought was my friend, she found a wallet and um, instead of turning it in, she kept the wallet. And because I was married to Bruce, who was a cop at the time, she thought we would just get a slap on the wrist. But she ended up using the credit cards and 
somehow I got to take the blame for this because <laughs> she thought uh, nothing would happen. She was five months pregnant, and she was afraid that um, she would she if she went to jail, she would um, her the daddy of her baby would take the baby away from her and all this. But stupidly again, I took the fall. How lo- how long do you have to yeah. spend in jail for that one? Oh, I think I was just R O R O R, just an overnight uh, thing. Oh, Not okay. even that; it was like a couple hours. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So and we were just given probation and made to pay restitution. So Karen was a felon. She was not allowed to have possession of a firearm. Eight days after John's killing, Karen is arrested for breaking a parole violation. On the 28th, when the detectives turn up to place you under arrest, can you talk me through that day? Um, it was, like, really early, and um, the detectives and, of course, plenty of media and the officers came. I was in the house um, by myself. PJ had gone back to Port St. Lucie at this point, and I was there, and I woke up, and they were knocking on the door, and they said, we have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, we have a warrant to check your home. And I was like, okay. So, of course, they came through and they went, I mean, from the attic to the garage. They went through every room and everything. And, and at this point, this is when they went into PJ's room because I was made to sit in the front room while they, you know, went throughout the house. And um, eventually they came out and they said, there's no weapon here. You know, I didn't give them no hard time. I got cuffed up. And they took me to the police station, and um, they processed me. And I was like, do I get a phone call? So I called my youngest sister, Annie, to let her know what had just happened to me. And she said, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm calling the attorney. I'm going to get, you know, they'll be there in just a little while to talk to you. And that's basically what happened. I, um, she called for an attorney that she knew, and um, he came and spoke to me, which was Mr. Taylor. And from there, I then met Mr. Kirkland, and both of them began uh, representing me in the case. And, um, you know, it wasn't, I guess, for like a month or two, I I would say it was like a month at least, before they ever went and arrested PJ. I guess they had too much circumstantial evidence, but they finally went over to Port St. Lucie and they cornered him and got him. He went back to his parents' house. Yeah, right. At any stage during your your yeah. your arrest, did you come clean about knowing it was PJ? Yes, I did. I mean, I told it to the attorneys immediately. Yeah. And, you know, and they were representing me, so they didn't want me talking to the detectives, like I said, because anything I said could be used against me and misconstrued, so they always just talk directly through them. So that's, in essence, what I ended up doing. I spoke directly to them. Yeah. So, yeah, they knew. So, um... But they seemed to be more concerned, uh... With the insurance money, mm. when they found out that John had insurance. I never felt like they were really caring about my representation. Prior to that arrest, I wanted to know from Karen what had been happening in those eight days. She's obviously still at home, and the last we heard, PJ was also still there. So then was, was PJ in the house... Then, in that sort of within during those eight days before your arrest, was he still staying at the house? No, he he left. He kept leaving and coming back, and that's what was like I like freaking me out. It's like you know he kept like giving me these threatening looks and stuff. Like I got this over you. I got this over you. Like I got this gun, and I'm like, where is he at with this gun? 
I mean, he knows where my sisters live. He knows where my kids are at. He knows where my kids go to school. And he could just go and do anything else to torment me because, I don't know, I, I felt like he was like, he had me trapped in my own home. And I was like defenseless and I'm sitting there listening to my sister and my youngest brother tell me what to do and not to say nothing, don't aggravate him, let them take care of it, let them take care of it. Because I just, I was not in the right frame of mind. And I think it was not even 24 hours after that incident that I did try to take my life. Um, I tried to overdose, that was caught all in the media. I was taken to, I think, um, matter of fact, to the hospital where it just so happens that my attorney's brother is a psychiatrist. That's where I ended up going is in, into the hospital for trying to overdose. Because, I, like I said, I was completely traumatized. Mm. I just didn't know if I was coming or going. I just felt like he was going to get me next. And I didn't know, again, I didn't know what his motive really was. Reportedly, a couple of days after Karen's arrest, detectives would sit down and interview a man named Louis Aragona. Now, Karen has mentioned this name Louis before. He is, in fact, Karen's stepbrother and an ex-con himself. He says to detectives that after one of his releases from prison in 1993, he's approached by Karen, who he says discussed an insurance policy worth half a million dollars. And if he dealt with John she would give him some of that money. Louis tells detectives that he had nothing to do with the shooting. However, he was part of the supposed break-in, which he did with, yes, you guessed it, PJ. Karen says that at the time she had no idea it was PJ and her half-brother that had committed the assault on John. This is what she says she found out after. Peter and, uh, yeah, Louis Aragona, who happened to be my half-brother, yeah. who was visiting... Him and uh, Peter had been out drinking together. So again, I found all this out long afterwards that they had been out uh, conniving with each other. And, you know, Louis was very, like, he had like a, a practically a fourth grade education. So he was easily persuaded. Mm. And PJ was manipulating him, from what I understand from my sister Annie, is that he was, uh, Peter was manipulating him, thinking that, you know, come on, we can, we can get this done, you know, da 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 da. I can, you know, I can get everything and we could sell it and, you know, we can go buy some drugs and stuff. Because little did I know, PJ was hooked on crack back then. Karen says since she's been in prison, her half-brother did write to her and apologise for his part in everything and that he knows she had nothing to do with it. However, these letters were written in his final days as he battled cancer. Didn't Louis come out and say that um, he was in on the whole thing? Yeah, Louis did. I mean, again, because Louis had been in prison and uh, he didn't want to go back to prison. He hadn't been out of prison very long. And yes, yeah, so he is the one who originally turned state evidence. But I guess at the end of his life, he knew that he had, you know, done me wrong and he started writing me all these letters. Louis ended up having melanoma cancer and before he died, he wrote me letters saying, um, I know you didn't do it. You had nothing to do with it. And I mean, of course, this is way too late and too far afterwards. But I do have those letters in his, uh, you know, deathbed type of um, confession saying that, you know, PJ is who set me up to take the fall and that um, if there's anything he could ever do. But of course, you know, he died before he could do anything. 
but I do have his, I still have his letters, just like I have these records here. But yeah, PJ was basically just setting me up for the fall for whatever his manipulative mind thought he was going to get out of taking over my household. I was too trusting. The prosecutor, you know, fell for PJ's good uh, surfer boy, blonde, blue-eyed looks, and he played her like a fiddle. I mean, that's exactly what my attorney said. He played her like a fiddle, and she soaked up everything he said. And what was his claims? As far as saying, like, I put him up to it. Yeah, okay. So, the, you, you, huh? there was, so his claims were that you basically told him, um, you, you told him that you wanted your, your husband dead and all the rest of it. And, I mean, I even heard stories that he said that um, John, he was going to put a snake in John when John was up under the car and stuff. And I'm like, where did they get these stories? Yeah, yeah. Like, Karen's not touching no snake. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's never happening. Karen won't even touch uh, bugs, much less a snake. So Karen is officially charged with the murder of her husband. So what it did you? What did they actually charge you with? What did they charge me with? Yeah, they charged me with premeditated first degree. First degree, but you, even though you didn't pull the trigger, yeah. I didn't pull the trigger. No, that's that's a proven fact. I didn't pull it. I mean, like I said, they did ballistics test on me right there at the hospital that proved I never had possession of a gun. Right there in the hospital, the emergency room, they did it. The tech cops came with a kit. And they did it right there. So the case built against you, was I mean, that that's just... that's probably why they let me go that night. So, but the, the case that was built against you, was that purely just off the basis of what Louis was saying and what PJ was saying? Yes, it really was. It was more circumstantial than anything. It was no proof. Motive. It's the first thing that police look for when there's been a crime such as this. What was the motive that detectives say was at the heart of all of this crime? Well, as always, money. Now, as we know, John was by no means a wealthy man. However, it would appear that he had an unusual amount of life insurance policies, something Karen says he almost had an obsession with getting. Uh, they also, okay, so there's also talk about you taking out multiple life insurance policies against John's name, which sort of added up to around about half a million dollars. Okay, see, this is where the truth comes in. Before John ever met me, I guess you could say it was a flaw of his, is that he had over 10 life insurance policies when I met him. Wow. Now, how they, this could be proven is that the dates on it will prove. I never knew him in 1978, first of all. One of them was that old. And then there was multiple toots of other ones, I guess, like he got through the mail. He even told me he had one through his job. And that's the insurance policy that his mother got. Was she was the beneficiary on that. And so this is, again, another misconstrued is that the dates of those policies will prove I never even knew him. The only policy that I knew him for was the one that he took out when we were married and only because he was trying to look out for my children because he felt so strongly for them is that he included them in that policy, which was the one from Mutual of Omaha. All the other policies, all the dates will show that he had them long before he ever knew me. Plus, another thing the media doesn't know is that John went to a lawyer and drew up his will himself, not something I manipulated or ever did. He went to a lawyer right in Altamont Springs and went in her office and drew up his uh, last wishes just as I did. 
There's where the media is wrong. So what about Karen's trial? Well, Karen didn't end up going to trial. She would take a plea bargain, she says, on the advice of her attorneys. I was going to trial, and then again, this is where the attorneys, the two attorneys, were only interested in getting the money. So they say, Karen, you know, you're never going to see your kids again. You're going to go to death row. They're going to put you on death row. And they just kept trying to convince me and, and were totally badgering me to the point that, you know, I was supposed to be listening to them. They were my attorneys, so they were supposedly looking out for my best interest, and they t- had me plead out to get to take the, um, the, the sentence. I mean, I really didn't understand. I mean, when he was telling me, Mr. Kirkland was telling me, oh, you won't do more than eight years. I mean, I've never been to prison, so I didn't know how it worked. Mm-hmm. And he's like, even if they say 20 years to uh, life, you're really only going to do, you're only going to do eight to 10 on that. And you'll be out and, you know, we're going to be right here to help you and da, 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 da. It was all, again, another lie just for them to be able to have control over the insurance money, which was their whole motive all along, it appears. They just wanted control over the insurance money. Is this the attorneys? This is what I'm supposedly have killed John for. Yes. This is supposedly what I killed John for, was to get the insurance money, when I'm the very one who didn't want any of it. Not even a dime. They got it all. So what was the plea that you you took? Um, I took attempted first degree is what they put there a lot because I gave that one for the the beating, the beating that no cops ever came out and did a police report for, believe it or not. So they gave me 22 years for that, and then they gave me 25 mandatory to life for the so-called premeditation. So they've gone back and looked at this incident at the house three months prior, and they've essentially just sort of gone, well, we'll put two and two together. But I'm assuming PJ told them that that was him. Oh, Louis did, didn't he? Louis did. Yeah. Louis did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Louis is who set that in motion. Yeah. Okay, so he's Louis told them that that's, that was the first attempt, uh, and then the shooting was the second attempt. Right, right, which Louis was not even nowhere a part of. Okay, so you've, so you've taken the plea on those two, thinking... Um, that you would get these sentences, but then you would be able to get out, I guess, on good behavior or, you know, you, you wouldn't have to serve the entire thing. Yeah, right, because, I mean, good behavior and game time. I mean, I mean, that's the story they were selling me. I mean, they really, I mean, they actually brought in pictures and everything showing what, what I would look like on death row. Again, I mean, it was all about manipulating me to think that I would never see my kids again. And at this point, I was still seeing my kids. So for them to tell me that I wasn't going to see my kids anymore, I was just like, well, I'll do whatever you you tell me. I mean, you're my attorney. I mean, you're supposed to be looking out for me. How long did it take I before mean, you realized that you wouldn't be getting out in eight to ten years, but in fact you would possibly not be getting out again? Well, when I um, got to the prison, one of the girls who actually is now free, um, Evelyn, and her daughter were in prison, and her case was similar to mine. And she says, Karen... This doesn't sound right. She said, you need to go to the law library, where, of course, I didn't even know what a law library was at the time. So she walked me down, and we went to the law library, and I had a law clerk over look everything over. And she's, no, no, Karen, you need to appeal this decision. They, they've totally set you up for the fall. They're not even trying to help you. Do you realize that you're going to serve your whole sentence practically to 25 years? And so she started painting a picture and showing me in Florida statutes and everything, and that, you know, I really was being made to be a duck. And uh, 
that they were in fact going after the money. That's all they wanted. You then file an, an appeal. What, what? I filed an appeal. Yeah, talk me through that. Okay, and the appeal was um, denied, of course, because the grounds were so, um, they said their grounds were not substantial enough. You know, remember these law clerks that were back then, it was basically she was just doing the job she was getting her days for. It wasn't like she was like trying to help me get free. I mean, I know this now. It was just basically her just going through the motions that she knew she had to tell me about an appeal, but it wasn't like she was doing any major research to try to help me get out. And then I did a post-conviction. I had 22 grounds, and uh, they only um, ended up only two of the grounds were accepted in the actual um, filing. In the end, it just kept getting denied because it wasn't being, I mean, it was only being done by law clerks. It wasn't being done by somebody who really knew what they were doing, nobody who knew of the law. And this is when I started taking matters into my own hand and I began researching and learning how to be a law clerk and became a law clerk to learn the process. If it just if nothing else, so it would never happen to anybody else like it did to me. Because, I mean, in the prison system, I don't know if you know this, in the, everything is a money scam. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the law clerks back then were just doing stuff for money. It wasn't that they were really trying to help anybody. And I always said that when I became a certified law clerk, that would never be me. I would always do it for the right reasons, which is just to show people the right ways, like how to file a grievance the right way how to file the court costs. But I didn't think that um, you got paid to be a law clerk or do they just ask you for stuff on the side? They have in other inmates send money to, you know, have it three-way to you. Right. Or you pay for it right out of your own canteen. Like you'll go to the store, you'll swipe your, your card basically and you the person will give you a list and you buy what they want from the canteen if um. you're not able to have it sent in directly to their account. Okay, yeah. and does that still happen, or do, is it less likely, less like that now? Of course, it does. Yeah. It happens all the time. She says her one hope at freedom lies in getting her parole date brought forward. What's left appeal-wise for you now? I've already done my clemency, and under that particular governor, none of us were granted. Yeah, no, I tried to call him the other day to have a chat with him yeah. about clemency, and he, they, they weren't keen to talk to me. So he's not real big on that. He's like more pro, do your do your whole time or die yeah, type of thing. Yeah. Could something get you back into court? Yes. Um, like I was saying, the lady who was my best friend here for many, many years before she got home, she was able to find an attorney out of Tallahassee. And matter of fact, I was just rereading her emails last night, you know, just praying over it and hoping. And uh, he got her, her parole date exonerated. And she was emergency release, so that's what I hope for, is that I've done over 15 years with a clear record um, in an incentive program. I've done over 121 certificates. I've earned three degrees while being incarcerated, and um, I'm just hoping that that will in some way show the parole board that I am a hard worker, I'm very educated, and that I hope to do something better with my life than stay here. But um, I do have a parole date, so I'm just trying to beat my parole date down right now. That's my biggest option. That's where I'm at at this point. So what's your parole date? Um, I'm not allowed to say. Oh, okay. Especially like on the phone. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I did not ask that question. So what of young Peter Giffen? 
the man who fired the fatal shots that killed John Newell. Well, he agrees to cooperate with prosecutors in order to obtain a more lenient sentence. He tells them that Karen pushed him into gunning down her husband and he pleads guilty to second-degree murder. He is convicted to a sentence of 24 years in prison and being eligible for parole after serving a minimum of 65% of that sentence. Peter Giffen has since served his sentence and is now a free man. Again, one of the biggest tragedies of all of this, apart from, of course, a man losing his life over seemingly nothing at such a young age, is that there are innocent children as well at the heart of this. Two children who lost their mother all those years ago. During our conversations, Karen did suggest that she would be open to me reaching out to her children on her behalf. Now, of course, I am always extremely cautious about doing this or even considering doing this. And if it had been Karen's children's father that had been killed all those years ago, I likely would not have done so. However, I did decide that I would try and reach out and send a private message to Karen's daughter. And, well, she did respond. She wished me well with the podcast project. However, she did not wish to get involved nor did she wish to open the line of communication with her mother. Now, this I have not told Karen, and I don't plan on telling Karen, as again, that would only serve to create her more pain. And guilty or innocent, she is already being punished for this crime and does not need any added suffering to that situation. If for some reason your children do stumble across this Um, show and and listen to this story. Is there something you would want them to know? Only that I've never not thought about them a day that goes by. They are always prayed for every single morning, every single night, and there's not a holiday or or their birthdays that don't go by. Like the poem that I read to you, um, I read that to myself on her birthday every year, and I, I just love and miss them and wish I had the opportunity to reunite with them, to to understand them as adults, to get to know their um, spouses and their children, my grandchildren, and just be reunited with them. I just would like that opportunity. You have one minute remaining. Oh, we got one minute. There you go. Perfect okay, timing. So, yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> we wrapped that up real good. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Karen, look, thank you so much indeed, as always, uh, for talking to me, telling me your story, and uh, I will stay in touch. Okay. All right. I'll talk all to you right. soon, It Karen. was great talking to you, Jack. And again, you know, just stay in touch with me. And, I will. Uh, Definitely. 100%. Just remember to try to send a stamp when you send it. Yes, so I always, I always, gotcha. always will. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Karen. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. This is the story of Karen Newell for now. But as always, I do stay in touch with everyone and we will stay up to date with Karen's case. John Newell's death was one that was unprovoked. He was oblivious as to what was about to happen to him. But what would happen if you knew you were going to be attacked? In fact, someone had tried to choke you 
And as a result of you defending yourself, that person ends up dead. So I grabbed the steak knife off my kitchen table, uh, kitchen counter rather, excuse me, and I stabbed him once. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. 